Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the JMO Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Michaels, and our guest this week, we have Heath Headley, fish biologist for Montana's Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Department out of Glasgow, Montana. Uh, Heath is the fisheries biologist for Fort Peck Lake, Fort Peck Reservoir in northeast Montana. Fort Peck being one of the premier fishing destinations in the lower 48, especially when you talk about trophy fish and definitely for lake trout and salmon. Uh, You know, look at the opportunities that we have south of the Canadian border. Fort Peck is is definitely featured as one of our one of our top destination fisheries. But that being said, with all the recommendations and write-ins that I get for Fort Peck, related to Fort Peck, uh, Heath's name definitely has come up many, many times uh, in uh, the last year or so. So this show is kind of a long time coming. I've got a ton of questions for Heath in this show. But that being said, we have to cover so much ground in this conversation. We're talking about the biology behind Fort Peck Reservoir. You know, both historically and as it is today with Heath. He's a wealth of information. Uh, but that being said, I got to say this. I got to lay down some of this groundwork a little bit because, you know, even if you hear some of it in the show, when I reached out to Heath, you know, I had like just uh, just a couple of bullet points, just a couple of things that I reached out to him with as far as topics or just, you know, just a few things that that might be interesting to him you know, to, to go over with me and do a podcast about. And, um, you know, the best part about Heath and, and a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of these sciencey guys is that he comes so well prepared. And so I, uh, you know, gave him a few bullet points that I might be interested in. And he responded with so much information. We're not even going to be able to cover it all in this episode, but Heath is so prepared for what I am looking for in this show. And when I say myself, you know, I have gathered so many topics relating to Fort Peck that have been wrote in or, you know, into our DMs that I appreciate so much. And I've tried to package it all into, you know, just a handful of categories uh, for Heath to cover and hopefully answer all of our questions or as many of them as possible. This is a super fun, a long interview with loaded, just this is loaded with information from beginning to end. And this is the biology of Fort Peck Reservoir. And regardless, my, my last point here in the intro would be regardless of where you're from, even if you don't, if you're not thinking about going to Fort Peck Reservoir to go fishing, um, which you probably should be. Uh, that being said, the big picture of all these topics that Heath covers in this conversation are topics that can be a conversation on any body of water and can get you thinking. And the more you, you list that I listen to this and, and I learn more about the biology that is happening on Fort Peck Reservoir from Heath, uh, it also makes me realize and probably connect a few dots on some other bodies of water that I fish, uh, just knowing a few things that I know already. And, you know, just in learning from Heath and and connecting those dots and, you know, just the more we know, the more we can nuance about uh, the fish that we go after and the ecosystem, the bodies of water that they live in that we go to fish, uh, just the better anglers we will be and the more educated anglers we we can be. That's my final point in this intro. It's a long intro, but I definitely wanted to set up the plot a little bit here. A long time coming, having Heath Headley from Glasgow, Montana. We're talking fish biology on Fort Peck Reservoir. Let's get into the interview. 
This episode of the JMO Podcast is brought to you by Montana's Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Department. As anglers, we have the ability to help protect the wonderful fishing opportunities in the state of Montana. For more information on regulations or AIS prevention in the state of Montana, head to the link that is in the description of this podcast. That is fwp.mt.gov backslash AIS. Take me back, man. Where are you from? Where did you cut your teeth in fishing? And, you know, just how has that contributed to, you know, what you do today professionally? We'll start there. Go ahead. Sure, sure. No, thanks. Um, Yeah, so, you know, probably like a lot of folks who, you know, grew up fishing, it was was my dad, my grandpa, you know, that that introduced me to it. And, and mostly my grandpa, really. He, he took me fishing a lot uh, and shoot. I mean, the sky was the limit. I mean, you know, we, we fished for everything. You know, I grew up uh, northeast South Dakota, Glacial Lakes region, you know, so a lot of uh, sloughs, you know, potholes, if you will. But, um, you know, the, the fishing really evolved over there, you know, last 20 to 30 years with with high water and you know flood events rain events uh snow um that sort of thing and and created these crazy amazing fisheries and you know like i said we fish for pretty much everything uh you know perch pike walleye uh bullheads heck i i even remember going to fish for creek chubs in this little stream that my grandpa used to trap and seeing and you know, catch creek chubs, hook and line, and then go down the road a little ways and, and fish for, for walleye and whatnot. But yeah, just, just a tremendous amount of species um, that, that, that I fished for growing up. And, and so, um, you know, that was all through school. I finished up with high school and then uh, went to South Dakota State University. Uh, from there, I got my bachelor's degree and I was looking around, you know, still interested, wanting to pursue the fisheries career. Um, I actually ended up working in Wyoming as a fisheries technician for uh, about nine months and based out of Casper. Uh, so I got to work on like the North Platte River system. Um, so the river itself and then also some of the reservoirs, you know, like Glendo. Uh, Pathfinder, Alcova, Seminole. So it was really cool to see that diversity, um, the uniqueness of, of those fisheries out there and um, just what just what they had to offer. And and then after that, I actually, I uh, moved up to Indiana and uh, I got my graduate degree out there, uh, Ball State University, actually worked up on Southern Lake Michigan, uh, looking at yellow perch population dynamics and so yeah it's just been you know kind of a fish all the time whenever I can and you know learn about fish and, and just try and you know get a better picture of you know how things react and, and why fish do what they do essentially yeah man I mean this is kind of a cliche question but you know, having a passion for fishing was probably a major, you know, as you kind of described it, it was a major gateway drug into, you know, just pursuing, you know, the career career path. But also, you know, how how much would you say, 
you know, you're just being an angler, just just being an everyday angler that gets out as often as you can. Like, how much do you feel like that contributes to um, just your job and your ability to do your job? I mean, you know, obviously it's probably not required. You could probably be uh, successful uh, doing what you do if you just went to work every day and looked at the science. But I mean, as an angler, man, how, how would you say that that really sort of helps you uh, with your job? Oh, it's, it's huge. I mean, you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, you talk kind of about the science portion of it and, you know, alluded to a little while ago, it's like, you know, we, we look at, you know, netting data from, from sampling surveys or whatever it is and, and, and crunch numbers and all this and stuff. And, you know, but I can also step back and say, you know, kind of put myself in the angler's shoes and be like, you know, well, we saw this in our netting surveys, but you know, the, the angler might've saw something totally different based on, you know, their fishing experience or whatever. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, kind of know where you're coming from, you know, but you know, this is why, you know, maybe you saw what you saw or had the experience, you know, that you did when you were fishing, you know, where, wherever it might've been. Um, but yeah, just, just being able to, you know, talk to anglers, it's, it's great. Um, you know, and, and we can learn a lot together, you know, by, you know, just sharing information back and forth. And, and like I said, you know, I'm, I'm always happy and excited to do that because again, you know, that's, really what this job is about. It's about learning. It's about communicating and and just, you know, comparing notes, really. When I get write-ins, you know, or recommendations, man, Fort Peck is a huge topic that comes in so regularly. And, you know, the work that you've done there, you know, your name really pops up a lot. So this, this show, this is your first time on, but it's, you know, it's probably coming on a year or more um, that I've just been trying to find it in, in the schedule and you and I have been trying to schedule. I mean, this is kind of a long time coming and, you know, probably a long ways before the first time I even reached out to you. So that's just a little context there, but I mean, you guys are doing great work. You're doing it. Uh, you know, there's definitely some information that I can't wait for us to get from you, but I mean, yeah, man, I mean, whatever it is, whatever your style of work is out there. Um, I just feel like, you know, the industry is definitely uh, receiving it positively but that being said now this this might be i'm going to kind of lean into this because this might be the last time my voice is heard in a little while but i want to get into some of this information we've we've got some ground to cover so i'm jumping right to it here i when i reached out to you i threw i just i i reached out in an email i believe i had like just a couple of really like open-ended and and uh, questions for you just some like really broad uh, you know, broad appeal topics that I sent to you, just wondering if any of them, you know, would stick, wondering if you would respond to any of them. And um, and so I kind of want to just throw that out there so that everybody knows I, I didn't really have a very pointed uh, request from you. But that being said, you know, you responded back and, and you definitely saw you know, what I was looking for, what I wanted to talk to you about. And so I'm going to give you the lead on that. All your, all of your, you know, sort of bullet points and the things that I was looking for, talking about Fort Peck Reservoir, where you work, talking about, you know, the the species and, and just sort of the sciencey stuff that's going on on Fort Peck, the things that you're involved in, the things that you lead in, uh, uh, that you lead, 
you know, looking back at the history of the of the reservoir, um, talking about the fish, the forage base, the growth rates, all, all these things, topics that I threw at you. Uh, so yeah, I'm handing it over to you now, and just kind of let everybody know, you know, what you do there. Talk about the reservoir, paint that picture for those of us that look at Fort Peck as, you know, a destination fishery that's, for a lot of us, it's a little bit exotic. We don't know everything about it. It sounds really cool because there's big fish over there. We know that, Um, you know, but what's the deal going on? What is Fort, what's going on in Fort Peck, you know, from, from you, from what you do, from, from kind of the sciencey sort of things. There you go, man. Like that's, that's my big spiel. Talk to me. (laughs) <laughs> no, that, that sounds great. Yeah. And, and thanks again, Taylor, for, for having me. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, probably the best kind of starting point, you know, to, to get into Fort Peck is, is talking about the reservoir elevations. Um, you know, it's, it's a man-made body of water. And so it, it created this reservoir on this, on the Missouri river system, um, you know, somewhat similar, you know, just like, you know, Oahe and Sakakawea further downstream, but I will say, you know, those, those are different systems, you know, based on, you know, size and habitat, uh, species composition, that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, reservoir elevations are, are huge, uh, influencer, you know, in, in really what we see out here on Fort Peck, um, you know, they, they kind of dictate, you know, forage levels, obviously habitat, um, you know, and, and then in turn, you know, our, our game fish species that everybody really likes to, you know, fish for, whether it be walleye, pike, you know, salmon, lake trout, uh, bass, um, you know, list goes on and on. And you know, that, that, that's the cool thing about Fort Peck. You know, I mean, it's, it's maybe some of, some of the folks are aware, you know, there's, there's more than one option, you know, when you come to fish. So if fishing slow for one species, you, you always got planned probably B and C, you know, but, uh, but yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the reservoir elevations, like I said, are, are, are a big influencer in what we see with regard to the fish community. Um, you know, again, you know, kind of like some of the other big reservoirs, <clears throat> you know, it's went through its ups and downs, um, some pretty dramatic ups and downs, you know, like back in the mid to late nineties, for example, um, you know, good precipitation events, uh, snow out here on the plains, uh, snowpack in the mountains, you know, all that stuff eventually ended up coming in Fort Peck Reservoir. And so, you know, it would gain, you know, elevation, you know, every spring coming in early summer, uh, maybe hold, stay that way. Well, during that time, you know, um, that uh, increase in water level, it would flood uh, vegetation along shoreline, things like grasses, um, you know, willows, cottonwoods, uh, a, a variety of other, you know, uh, vegetative, terrestrial vegetative species. And what that did is really a couple things. Uh, you know, it provided spawning, rearing habitat uh, for, for primarily perch, some spot-tail shiners. Um, which are a good forage component um, for some of the smaller fish species, but then like pike, pike love that stuff to spawn on too. And, and so when we have, you know, high reservoir elevations and, and that inundation of, of terrestrial 
vegetation, we can expect some, you know, good reproductive success. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we also see uh, a bump in our productivity or typically like our zooplankton density, which is really the building block for the entire fish community that's swimming around out there. You know, those fish, once they hatch out from their eggs, they, they're, they're technically called fry. Um, and, you know, for, for a lot of those species, it's critical that they have that, you know, right out of the gates, you know, to get them growing um successfully and you know the faster they grow the better their survival is really so yeah and um you know just to try and probably i guess i don't know if 20 years is you know uh, a short time frame anymore but you know when i first started like in, in 2006 um the fort peck reservoir it was at an all-time low record uh reservoir elevation um, and so it was pretty crazy. I mean, there was essentially <clears throat> no habitat in terms of being flooded or even like submerged vegetation because following that late 90s period, the drought conditions uh, set in really hard. And, you know, it was basically close to 40 to 50 feet were lost from, like I say, late uh, 90s to mid 2000s. Well, um, boy, the, the, the tides had really turned, um, you know, following 2006 um, and 2007. And we actually saw, or I should say Fort Peck saw an increase of about 10 to 15 vertical uh, feet in elevation over about a four-year time frame. Um, so we, Fort Peck gained roughly 50 vertical feet from the 2007-2008 period up until 2011. Um, and it went in stages, uh, you know, like I said, 10 to 15 feet. And, and I always try and explain this to, you know, the audience or people who are wondering about this stuff. When we saw that increase of about 10 to 15 vertical feet within a, within a year, you know, and typically it was actually, you know, two to three months because, you know, snow melt was occurring. This is in the springtime. Um, and getting in a little bit earlier summer when we start to see the mountain snowpack start to come down the Missouri River system, that 10 to 15 vertical feet would equate to about 30,000 surface acres in size. And, and that's what Fort Peck would gain, like I said, in, you know, roughly almost like a three-month time frame, essentially. And, uh, you know, I don't know what, you know, some of your listeners would equate that to, but like out here in Montana, that's the size of Canyon Ferry Reservoir, you know, and so we kind of gained that, you know, in just that very small amount of time frame. And um, it is, you know, going back to, well, what did that do? You know, it created a tremendous amount of habitat. Um, and then again, over the course of that four years, you know, you extrapolate that out a little bit more and it was, you know, a little over a hundred thousand surface acres. So super impressive, um, very beneficial to the fishery. Um, you know, and, and we're actually still seeing, you know, a, a little bit of those results, you know, kind of still down the road, you know, not, not to a very large degree, um, but, but I'll get into it here in a little bit when we start talking about some of these other species and whatnot, um, and, and just the role that like 2011 played um, in, in what we're seeing out there to this very day, Taylor. So it's, it's pretty cool. Um, very impressive. And, and like right now, I guess, just for the listeners, you know, we're at um, kind of average 
reservoir elevations. We came up actually um, close to eight feet from this spring, like back in, in April, at the first part of April. So, um, you know, there's actually some flooded shoreline out there right now. It didn't really happen until later on, though. So um, that's kind of a little bit, uh, um, you know, discouraging, I will. I, I don't want to say discouraging because it's not all bad. It's, it's still really good to see. But, like, um, you know, going back to our yellow perch here in Fort Peck, they're, they're a very early spawner. You know, typically April um, is when we see that they're, they're attempting to spawn right along with our walleye and pike. You know, so we didn't see that uh early rise in reservoir elevation until you know just recently here you know back in about middle of may uh when things finally started getting flooded so unfortunately you know like perch probably couldn't use much uh uh of that flooded vegetation to spawn in and around um but uh but yeah there's 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 still other stuff out there too and and, and that's maybe a kind of a good route to go into so i talked about fur perch being a, a a forage item for for the game fish species out here uh the other kind of three big ones really are uh, spot tail shiners and emerald shiners and then uh, crappie um so those are typically the the four that we see um in in larger abundances and then also in the stomach contents of our you know our walleye or pike or bass that sort of thing um and they all kind of you know behave a little bit differently depending on you know what what temperatures are doing and and then reservoir elevations too and and then how they respond accordingly to that so um you know again going back to 2011 and, and following years man we saw some record perch numbers uh you know because of all this flooded grasses, uh, trees, sagebrush even. Um, it was really crazy to see. I mean, yeah, that was numbers that we had never really <laughs> experienced before, but but what they did was they provided some very beneficial food items for, for a lot of the, the um, game fish species that are out there. And um, yeah, um, you know, so that's, that's, that's kind of one, part of our, our forage base and uh you know like i said they're really critical and, and important for like typically our smaller size walleye that are out there along with the smaller bass and pike too um because where i'm going next is is our cold water forage fish or our cisco um you know that's 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 another big big component out here in fort peck and i think you're probably pretty interested in that oh yeah man anything that you can talk about in terms of you know the cisco and just what is it about the ciscos that uh that allows them to contribute so much uh you know as a forage fish on a body of water like fort peck yeah so <clears throat> well like i say you know they're they're kind of this other really important component to this fishery um and i kind of I'm going to probably even back up a little bit here and just kind of maybe talk about the introduction because there's some really neat stuff that we've, we've observed, you know, following their introduction in the Fort Peck um, and, and, and what we've seen along the road, you know, up, up until present, really. So Cisco were introduced into Fort Peck in 1984. 
uh, they followed up with actually there were several stockings. So 1984, 85, and 86, and and since then there there has been no no stocking whatsoever. Um, they're completely self-sustaining. Uh, they've actually been doing really well, and um, you know, right out right out of the gates. I mean, these these Cisco were um, they were growing fast. They were growing really really fast, and it was almost to the point where it was too fast if that makes sense because um when they were stocked and then they would uh, spawn um you know these fish were growing like i think you know some of the early data that they were trying to get on age information like these fish that were two years old cisco that is i mean they were close to 13 inches already but you know that's kind of like you know any any species really as soon as you know it's into a system where there's no other competition or no other um individuals like them i mean the sky's the limit in terms of the food and the habitat that they can all get on right away um and and it was really interesting to see you know the following years you know what kind of kind of the the population dynamics if you will what what happened to them um so like I said, I mean, there was some very fast growth in, and almost too fast to the point where they really shot by a lot of the mouths of the predators that were out there, you know, like, so the walleye, for example, you know, a, a 12 inch walleye isn't going to be able to, you know, get like a, a 13, 14 inch Cisco. Um, they were also growing big too. There was like, you know, back then um, fish that were, Cisco that were up to 18 inches in size, you know, early on. Um, well, you know, kind of fast forward down the road about, you know, six, seven years, things kind of worked themselves out and <clears throat> they actually started seeing slower growth in these Cisco. So they weren't obtaining these big sizes um, like they had right out of the gate. And you know, part of that had to do with the the planting community out there, the zooplankton community. And they actually saw a, a shift, um, really, because so Cisco are a filter feeder. They 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 feed on zooplankton. You know, they out there swimming around. They, they'll eat some insects and whatnot as well. But you know, for the most part, they're 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 keying in on plankton. And what they found was that there was actually a shift in the zooplankton community in Fort Peck, um, basically from some of the larger zooplankton species. Uh, they were selecting for those. They were they were keying in on them, and they really cropped them off essentially. And well, what like I said, that kind of led to you know more limited food items for the Cisco, and so their growth rates actually started slowing down. But you know this got a little bit more beneficial for for some of the the walleye, you know that are on a smaller size, uh, the pike, you know lake trout, that sort of thing, and. Uh, and so it was really neat to see that evolve. And the other part, too, is what was going on. They were extremely boom and bust. Uh, it was the type of deal where they would have a big spawn or a very successful spawn. They would pull it off. And then a period of time would go by where, I mean, it was like five, maybe six years where there would be small year classes present in between. And then all of a sudden that sixth year or fifth year, they would pull off another huge year class. So it was very kind of a, a 
indicative of a, of a density type growth mechanism, really. They were all competing, you know, um, for limited resources at, at a certain point in time. Um, but yeah, it was neat to see that. And, and now where we're at is uh, we're not thankfully in that boom and bust cycle, you know, like we, we used to be back in those, you know, shoot 10 to 20 years, you know, 20 years right after their, their introduction. You know, I would say within the last close to 15 years, um, it's been relatively consistent reproduction and recruitment from the Cisco population in Fort Peck. And, uh, you know, the, the other interesting thing is they've even gotten a little bit smaller in size, you know, overall length, if you will. Like for us anymore, um, I mean, if we see a 12-inch Cisco out here in Fort Peck, that's, that's big. Um, you know, more along the lines of probably 10 inch. So, you know, kind of <laughs> not good for the Cisco, you know, in their sense, you know, from, from their population or, or their individuals, but boy, from a, from a predator prey relationship and, and fish being able to utilize them, um, you know, like walleye, for example, um, you know, well, kind of even going back a little bit more, like back in, uh, it was like early to late early to mid nineties, uh, there was a, a student out of Montana state university looking at, you know, kind of some of the Cisco population dynamics and, but also looking at like gape limitation and, and what like walleyes were able to, you know, eat and consume in terms of the size of Cisco that were out there. And like, they found, you know, that an 18 inch walleye, you know, once they got up to that size in Fort Peck, they were able to, they were able to take down some of those bigger adults, um, you know, and I'm talking adult Cisco, you know, like, you know, seven plus inches in length, typically um, age one type stuff. So, yeah, um, but obviously there's some young a year Cisco that hatch out in the spring. Um, and they are they are, They can be a good component at certain times of the year, too, for for the walleye. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. And like I said, I mean really there's there's a variety of of age groups of cisco out there because we actually do uh asian growth information on on cisco just like our walleye um our bass our our, our lake trout salmon that sort of thing we look at otoliths um and we've actually seen cisco in fort peck in terms of longevity um up to about 12 years in age jeepers yeah so it's 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 some neat stuff um i'm just trying to think if there's anything else in there that the fishing opportunities across the state of Montana are phenomenal. If you're from there or you've already been there a bunch to experience it, you know just how special these opportunities are. If you haven't, fishing out west should absolutely be on your bucket list. But aquatic invasive species like zebra mussels and Eurasian water milfoil can harm recreational opportunities. As boaters, as anglers, we have the ability to help protect Montana's waters by cleaning all mud, plants and debris off our boat, recreational equipment, and fishing gear before we leave any access sites. Drain the water from your motor, your live well, your bilges, and allow your boat and equipment time to dry before your next outing. No matter what watercraft you use, please, if you're traveling in the state of Montana, stop at all inspection stations. Together, we can protect Montana's waters. Visit the link in the description of this podcast for more information. That's fwp.mt.com. Dot gov backslash AIS. 
Well, yeah, one little thing, just may, maybe it, maybe I'm the only one, you know, that's curious about this, but, you know, and, and I really like, I just, I just want to recap here, uh, like what I'm taking away from this is that, you know, I, I think from so many of us that don't live near or around Fort Peck, you know, the Cisco's definitely do get the headlines as far as, you know, producing, you know, the, the trophy fish that, you know, we want to go there to catch, but, you know, uh, talking about the shoreline forage fish you know that you you know talking about the perch and the crappie and and the shiners like they're sort of the unsung heroes because you couldn't just have cisco you you know it's really a package deal and just how important those are but the question i have you know you look you know looking back on everything you've said so far you know we talked about you know, uh, the the spawning conditions and just things that you can see or look for or predict in a spring season that will let you know whether there's going to be a good perch spawn or whether you know there's going to be potential for, you know, the shiners to to recruit well. What about the Cisco's? What is it about, you know, what are the, what's the habitat or conditions that Cisco like to spawn in that has made them seemingly in the last you know decade as you say a little bit more you know flattened out on the curve or a little bit more bulletproof as far as spawning like talk to me a little bit about that and and what it is or how they're built you know as far as reproducing that you feel like has made them more steady on fort peck yeah yeah you bet no that and that's a great question um well thanks for bringing that up so as far as like spawning requirements for Cisco, um, you know, they're, they're, they're actually spawning in the fall. They're, they're actually one of like one of the last ones to, to attempt to spawn, you know, out here in Fort Peck, that's probably, you know, about the end of November, first part of December, right before things freeze up. And that's one of the things that we've seen. And, 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 and the other cool thing about, you know, like, studying out here in Fort Peck is we also like to look, you know, you know, what, what are other places seeing it, you know, as far as, you know, why they do what they do. Um, granted, again, I'm just going to say, you know, every place is a little bit different, you know, whether it's a reservoir and size and spawning substrate, but, you know, if we see um, like decent ice cover and when I say decent ice cover, I'm kind of talking about duration um, if we have a good freeze up, you know, like, you know, typically uh, end of December, you know, or, or first of the year, you know, especially end of the end of December, um, that's that's kind of early. And I'm talking about reservoir wide too. you know, um, granted, some of the bays and stuff freeze up, you know, quicker than, than the main lake stuff right off the base of the dam. But if we see a good freeze up. And that ice holds and and it lasts, you know, all the way up until, you know, April, roughly. Um, What that ice does is it protects those Cisco eggs that are, have been fertilized and are incubating because they'll incubate underneath the ice throughout the whole winter months. Um, It protects those eggs from wind wave action, which causes sediment, you know, to, to swirl around, build up, and then, you know, you'll get that sediment covering your eggs and you could loss, you know, you could have a pretty, pretty big reduction really in, you know, your year class strength. Um, the other part is drawdown in reservoir elevation during that time as well. You know, if we see stuff, you know, typically starting to get greater than 
10 feet, you know, a drawdown during the winter months, again, you know, that has implications for uh, reduced year class strength of Cisco, you know, on Ford Pack. And then kind of like I even mentioned um, a little bit prior to that was prior year class strength. So basically all their older counterparts that are out there swimming around because you know, once these guys hatch out, they're going to have to get on zooplankton right away, start feeding so they can grow and, and you know, be successful. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of some of the things that, that we see that influence, um, you know, the Cisco out here and, and why we've seen. Because really, you know, over the last, you know, basically from 2011 till present, um, yeah, the reservoirs dropped down, but it hasn't been as severe as what we saw you know, uh, late nineties going into the early two thousands. I mean, it was just a steep drop, um, with, with no up and down or very little, um, increase in elevation at all. Taylor. Yeah. So you're saying the Cisco's, they do their deal, you know, like you said, in the fall, they do their deal and the eggs are just laying right underneath the ice until spring when it opens up again. You know, they do like to have, you know, hopefully a little bit of a gravel substrate, although I wouldn't be surprised, um, you know, that we don't have a ton of gravel substrate out here. There's definitely areas where it's more prevalent, you know, so typically like, uh, you know, the upper stretch of the, the upper big dry arm or like if you're heading, you know, west of Hell Creek. Um, and again, actually, it's, it's kind of ideal because the obviously the the further west you get to where the river system comes in or like in the big dry arm those areas are going to freeze up sooner um and they do have some of that habitat so you know those are kind of some of the ideal situation for them and again they're you know they're shallow i think you know roughly you know 10 3 to 10 feet it seems like is is the area that they're spawning in um so yeah Right on, dude. Yeah, I I just think, you know, in some on some level that the information is just, I mean, it's just fascinating in its own right. Right, we're just learning some stuff, but it all means something. You know, it's it just kind of, you know, just kind of you can look back on on the last few years because I feel like with reservoirs, I, I guess for me anyways, you know, when I'm fishing, you know, when I'm you know say I'm preparing for a fishing trip, whether it's somewhere, you know, here on Sakakawea, close to where I live, if that's, you know, you know, if I'm heading out somewhere where I'm a little bit more familiar, or if I'm heading somewhere that I haven't been before, or it's been a long time, like, you know, you're trying to think fishy thoughts, right? You're trying to think like, you know, what's it going to be like? What are the patterns going to be? What are the conditions? You know, you're consuming all that information. But like, on a reservoir like Fort Peck, you know, knowing the last like 15 years uh, of conditions out there, there's certain elements to it that, you know, can be can contribute a whole bunch to just trying to think about, you know, what what class of fish you're looking for or, you know, what you know, what's the forge base going to be if you're going to try to, you know, match the hatch, you know, as far as your presentations and all those types of things. But also there's just certain things that it's only the conditions that are happening right now really matter, you know? And so it's kind of like a blend. And I, so I think yeah. knowing the history and knowing some of that stuff is probably the least, uh, talked about, uh, 
category of conversation when we talk about these reservoirs. Everybody just wants to talk about what's going on right now. Right. And then, or, you know, you talk to somebody, you know, this is, I'm, I'm this way. If I ever run into somebody that, you know, I know is, you know, you know, somebody that's been fishing, say, you know, for a long, long time on Sakakawea or Fort Peck, somebody that's from there, you know, it's like, have you ever seen conditions like this before? You know, they might be able to remember, you know, five or six or seven years ago when it was, you know, I remember, a, you know, a water levels like this. And I like, I remember, you know, temp- water temperatures being like this. And, you know, you talk about that, but, but you're never going to know the context of what, say, happened three to five years prior to that year. So, like, it's all different. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, like it, 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 all, it, it all means something a little bit, you know, I mean, both just in knowing this stuff and learning this stuff, but also as anglers, you it, know, yeah, like for sure. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because, yeah, you know, we can, you know, we can look back at those years and say, you know, you know, well, this is what happened in, you know, whatever year. And then, you know, that year kind of looks similar to this. But in reality, sometimes that's not always the case because there's just these small variables that, you know, have the potential to influence, you know, in a different manner. But, you know, like I will say, and, and, and that's actually, you know, a good point that you brought up and, you know, kind of how it maybe influences fishing, you know, so really, you know, the other part of this is, you know, we haven't seen, oh, those perch, crappie, spot tail, shiner, emerald shiner numbers real high kind of recently. Um, but like I said before, I mean, man, these Cisco, they're pulling off, you know, not a big year class every year, but at least every other year. And I mean, again, they're good size. But if we don't have that shoreline forage component, you know, especially again for those smaller fish, um, but then there's Cisco, on the other hand, those fish are going to push out deeper. They're going to suspend and they're going to do something a little bit, you know, I guess different compared to whatever that year was, you know, where again, perch numbers were high or spot tail shiner numbers were high. Like one, that terrestrial vegetation was flooding, you know, along shoreline. Cause you know, sometimes that can make for a nice shallow bite of, you know, pitching stuff up in there, you know, you know, catching walleye bass, that sort of thing. Well, you know, really that, that wasn't the case last recently, you know, two years. Um, like I said, we didn't see that shoreline forage component there, but by gosh, those Cisco were there. And so again, those Cisco walleye, I mean, they're going where the groceries are, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things you just can't compare every year to every year, but it's like, there's small differences where it makes a big difference. If, if that makes sense. Let let's talk about some of the game fish. Let, let, well, maybe we can start with the walleye. That's probably one of the more popular ones that that I get requested for. But lake trout are certainly right there. You obviously have a salmon deal. That's kind of a really cool, unique thing over there. And there's definitely, um, you know, sort of a, a lot of anglers that are always curious about the salmon. And and you're talking about the smallmouth bass and the northern pike. Maybe, you know, talking about the walleye, we'll go one by one or cover as much ground as we can. But like, you know, talking about the walleye, what's kind of the overview, you know, relating everything we've already talked about, you know, the forage and and the water levels and all these things that sort of create the ebbs and flows on a reservoir. But what's the overview with the walleyes, you know, kind of looking at, you know, what's the information that you guys collect and, and how do you collect and what are some of the important bullet points to sort of realize that, you know, anglers could relate to their fishing experience with the walleyes on Fort Peck. 
Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so, you know, to, I guess, maybe jump right into it um, and, you know, right out the gate, I would guess I would say, I mean, our, our walleye population is, is doing pretty gosh darn good. Uh, we're, we're above uh, our long-term average of number of walleye per net night. So, you know, we have these <clears throat> basically standardized sampling uh, protocols set up, you know, where we go out. You know, same locations, same time of year, um, you know, same size net. And so we can compare basically, you know, what we had for walleye, you know, this year to five years ago and, and 10 years ago, you know, again, to track those changes, you know, and, and how the population is behaving and responding to the forage levels and reservoir levels and that sort of thing. But no, um, the walleye population is, is doing pretty gosh darn good. Um, and really, in terms of the size structure, <clears throat> there's, you know, everything from, from smaller fish up to, to some, some very nice bigger fish, you know, walleye, upper 20-inch, you know, and 30-inch stuff out there as well. So, and, and, and with fish in between, you know, there's, there's no missing year classes, um, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, and, and part of that goes back to, you know, again, really, so interestingly so we collect these fish you know from nets but we also collect the oldest on the walleye like i mentioned um and we do that to get age and growth information and, and it helps us determine you know if there's a big year class or multiple year classes out there um how fast these fish are growing and then their longevity too you know so um it's going back to that 2011 year we actually still have walleye in the system in Fort Peck from that 2011 year. Again, that was the highest water year um, on record. We had a ton of inflows coming into the tributaries. Um, those fish actually spawned pretty gosh darn successfully because we we did a with microchemistry project a little ways down the road too and determined that. But uh, yeah, so these fish that are in the upper 20-inch, close to 30-inch range, they're out there still, and they're swimming around, you know. So it's really amazing that there's 12-year-old walleye swimming around, you know, in Fort Peck to this day. Um, but then again, that goes back to, you know, the, the perch numbers that we saw. They, Of course, there was all sorts of food items back then after those fish had hatched out, and they were growing through their smaller to medium-sized stages, and then bam. They they were, you know, like I said, 18 inches on up. They were on the Cisco train after that, and it was pretty much smooth sailing. So food, habitat, all those things, <clears throat> you know, um, playing a, a very important part in, in why we're seeing that walleye population doing what it's doing out there to this day. And, and really, there's actually a, a lot of smaller fish out there. Um, as well, we saw a really big year class of, of walleye around that 14 inches last year. Um, so yeah, that's, that's tremendous to see as well. I, what would you say on Fort Peck is the biggest, like, like of all the series of events that it takes to have a really good, strong year class, um, or, or say, you know, to, for it to get to up to uh you know that 18 inches where it's on the cisco train like you said where they're and it's smooth sailing like what's the biggest limiting factor from you know the very beginning 
you know, you know, as far as like like spawn spawning conditions, all the way to they get to that eighteen inches and they're and they're starting to target the Cisco's. Um, you know, I guess my question is 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 it you know the spawning conditions? Like, is it just literally the number of fertilized eggs? Does, does that tend to be the most difficult thing to achieve, or is it you know the 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 conditions right after that? Is it you know is it you know, the zooplankton, is it that sort of rung on the ladder? You know, is it, you know, predation? Like, like when you look at that, you know, that uh, part of the timeline in a walleye's life on Fort Peck, like what is the biggest, most challenging, uncontrollable factor um, to their, uh, you know, success or failure? Well, to be honest with you, again, it's, it's, we can't just look at one of those items. I mean, it, and, and like we say it, and mine might sound cliche, but all the stars have to align, Taylor. And that, like I said, that 2011, <clears throat> excuse me, 2011 year class is a prime example. I mean, it was, I mean, all the stars aligned. You know, they had good spawning habitat, good substrate. Um, you know, there was obviously adults present, you know, for them to spawn successfully on their own. Um good plankton production shortly after they hatched. Um, you know, I would say though, if I kind of have to maybe refine it or narrow it down, it would be that smaller, younger stage for those walleye. You know, if they don't have those kind of smaller sized food items, whether they be the shoreline forage, or like I said, I, I think what's really been helping us out the last few years is the presence of uh, H0 Cisco or young year Cisco that hatch out here in, you know, April, um, to fill that void, you know, it's, it's a three inch food item, basically, you know, to get those 10 to 12, 14 inch walleye buy for two to three years, Taylor. And then, like I said, once, once they hit that 18 inch mark, you know, they're, they're golden, man. Um, so it's that, like I said, that was, that would probably where I would have to put it is that, middle of the road stage you know down there in that smaller size walleye yeah no i appreciate that answer a whole bunch that might be a relatable piece of information in a lot of other places but it you know you're talking to somebody from say northern minnesota you know a fisheries specialist there you know that there's going to be a totally different element you know there's a different ecosystem and that could be that 12 to 14 inch walleye uh, you know, say like out here in the Dakotas in our potholes where we've, you know, the forage base of like freshwater shrimp, 12, yeah, 12 to 14 inch walleyes don't have an issue ever. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and like I said, I, I remember seeing that, yeah, amphipods, you know, freshwater shrimp scuds, plus you have, you know, uh, fathead minnows <laughs> galore, yeah. you know, and then, and then also yellow perch, obviously. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's again, different forage base, different system. And, you know, like I say, our perch numbers are never that strong out here. You know, a lot of that has to do with habitat and and the fluctuations and elevation that we've seen, but man, that 2011 year and following it was, it was very impressive to see what we saw in terms of just perch. But then again, overall, you know, food abundance, you know, there was no limiting factor whatsoever that those fish could not eat. Um, But yeah. Um, And kind of, you know, maybe one other interesting thing that I would like to throw in here, you know, talking about age and growth, because like I said, you know, we can see some years, 
you know, like when growth was good or when it was average or when it was poor, you know, like a good example going back to that 2006 year, Taylor, is um, we saw, you know, again, low numbers of shoreline forage and, uh, you know, those fish, those walleyes, they, they weren't growing that fast. And so, I mean, honestly, for us, it was taking, it was taking quite a while uh, for those fish to reach any good size at all. I mean, you know, we still had like a six-year-old walleye back then, you know, it was probably only about 14 inches in size, but, you know, fast forward and move into 2011, like I said, when there was all sorts of forage opportunities, you know, that fish was now 20 inches in size, you know, for that same, same age fish. So, you know, it just goes to show you what, what a difference food can make. This year has been kind of an interesting year across, you know, this part of the country, as far as, you know, the spring where our late ice was really late, you know, everybody, you know, winter lasted a long time, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and then once spring hit, you know, it was, it just kind of spring kind of blew by really fast. And now, you know, and, and now it's really warm water temperatures are up, you know, and, uh, you know, it just seemed like it was really, really fast. And it seemed like, you know, the, it affected the spawn. Everything was a little bit wonky. Tell me what kind of, what did you see on Fort Peck this spring that might've been kind of interesting? What was, what was sort of the timeline coming through, you know, the walleye spawn? I know you guys have a hatchery there in Fort Peck. You collect eggs. Um, you know, talk me about what happened this year and, and, and anything that was particularly interesting about it, you know, good or bad or otherwise. Yeah, you bet. So, yeah, as you pointed out, it was definitely a, a crazy year across, you know, Midwest for uh, just ice and, you know, when when spring was actually going to happen. But uh, for us, like you mentioned, we go out, we have an annual trap netting egg collection effort for walleye on Fort Peck. And so we go out there, collect those fish, um, fertilize the eggs, and then they'll go back into Fort Peck along with a handful of other water bodies here in Montana. Um, but yeah, we did, this was actually our latest start on record in terms of getting out there, getting that set, collecting fish. Um, you know, and it's projects been going on for shoot close to, you know, 40 years now, but yeah, it was the latest start on record. Matter of fact, we didn't get started until the very end of April there on a normal year. We're out there first week in April, um, you know, but yeah, and we were really going into uncharted territory because like I said, I mean, this was the latest start. We didn't know if the fish were going to attempt to spawn on their own or if they were going to hold their eggs and actually start reabsorbing them, uh, which can happen um, depending on what the water temperatures are doing. Because yeah, it it was crazy. But what we found was that those walleye actually held on to their eggs. We did encounter some fish that had released their eggs, some female walleye that had released their eggs already. But as soon as we got out there, I mean, the the ice was gone. And I mean, we were trapped netting within essentially a day after the ice had receded. Um, they were releasing their eggs essentially right away, Taylor. Um, and so it was like, holy cow. But, you know, kind of the thinking and and probably the rationale behind that is we had ice cover. It was cold. 
Um, but then when we got out there, temperatures started warming dramatically and those fish responded. Um, you know, so we saw those females and male walleye go pretty much directly into spawning mode. It wasn't a nice, gradual, easy thing like on a normal year, because typically it lasts, you know, about three to four weeks really is what we see and, and how much time we spend out there. But it was essentially condensed down into, well, maybe close to a week, but we collected a very large amount of eggs in a short amount of time. It was like four days we collected 67 million eggs. That's unbelievable. Um, yeah. I mean, like I said, nearly every female walleye we collected was ripe and ready to go. And, and then the males, you know, they were, they were ready to go as well, but yeah, it was, it was crazy. So again, it, those fish held off, you know, just long enough. The one thing that I will say about it was though, that, um, you know, we got eggs that we needed, you know, wanted for hatchery production, but it does look like the egg quality did suffer a little bit, Taylor, just because, you know, like I said, they get to that point where the longer they hold on to them, they start to get overripe eggs or start to reabsorb part of those eggs. And therefore, when those eggs are fertilized, they don't fertilize as well because they're not, you know, real quality or at the peak of their condition, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I... Yeah, like it's not like poor egg quality means that it's going to produce a smaller, slower growing, not as intelligent, you know, just a slower right. walleye. It's just, you know, it, it's a quality quality control more so just for viability. Yeah, yeah, they're just yeah, they're just not going to fertilize, period. Yeah. On years, what would the conditions have to be or or what what conditions have you ever seen it before where they do hold on or, or where they do reabsorb their eggs? You bet. Yeah. And, and there was actually one year, uh, not long ago where we saw that within the last, I'm just trying to remember all the years blend together now, but there was a year and, and that's a really good example of, so we got out there, um, you know, typical time frame. you know, um, kind of first week in April, got our gear in the water, our trap nets that is, and, and set up, started catching fish. Water temperatures were, you know, cool, um, you know, right around like 40 degrees. Well, they gradually started warming up, which they should, but then we had, I mean, some severe cold fronts move in, Taylor. Um, so water cooled back down, you know, it was just like the fish were just starting ready to, to, to get into the spawning mode and do their thing and then that cold front brought came in you know snow uh continued cold temperatures and then it shut them down um and then it warmed back up again and so what we saw that particular year was basically the kind of this roller coaster of up and down water temperatures and that's where those fish held on to those eggs they didn't want to release them and uh basically yeah started reabsorbing them so it was more of a, it was more of a, like I said, a roller coaster of an up and down water temperatures. It's like, ah, uh, they know they should be doing something, but, uh, you know, we're going to hold off. And it's crazy to, you know, think that fish think that way, but by gosh, I mean, they, they respond to, to, you know, what's going around in their surround surroundings, you know, with the water temperature. Like, is there any, is there any information? Do we know anything about that as far as like how that affects those individual fish? Like, 
I mean, they absorb those eggs and it's just no big deal. Maybe it's a little bit of nutrition for their body. And, you know, we just don't get, you know, we just don't get the walleyes out of it this year, but, but they're fine and good to go next year. Or is like, is there any other negative effects to that? Like, like what's, what about that? Do we think we know? Yeah, there, there is a little bit of information out there. You know, there is some stuff, you know, it says, you know, that, yeah, they, they do reabsorb that, you know, some, some goes back into nutrients. But then there was also one study um, that I recall, I can't remember where, but they, they looked at, at it and noted a similar thing. But they did notice that sometimes, you know, and I, and I don't remember percentage or whatever, that sometimes those fish, you know, didn't spawn um, the following year, potentially. So, yeah, to get back to your question, you know, it, you know and, that, and that even on a, on a regular um population walleye population you know that's not to say that all those fish are spawning year after year after year you know the big thing probably that dictates if they will spawn year after year as well temperatures for one but then you know how is the forage base looking out there do they have a lot of food items to eat to allocate that energy towards reproductive growth you know whether it be uh, sperm for males or egg production, you know, for females, if that makes sense. What would be a few bullet points that we could hit on the lake trout along the same lines of, uh, is like what you're talking about with the walleyes, like, like what do, what do you guys look for or look at, or what are some of the interesting, um, you know, data points and just things that you've seen over the years on Fort Peck with the lake trout that is ultimately now, you know, become, kind of one of the hottest uh one of the hottest uh fishing opportunities around you know as far as lake trout especially south of the of the canadian border um you know seen a a big uptick in popularity to go out and and catch those those lake trout on fort peck so what what can we how much love uh you know in the next you know eight to ten minutes can we give the lake trout oh we we, we can give them a little bit of love yeah no um it's uh so like you mentioned, it's, it's popping up more and more on folks' radar. You know, there's, there's definitely more interest than there was, well, 10 years ago. And, and really, you know, we did start, uh, you know, much like our walleye, a, a standardized netting program to, to hopefully try and get a better handle on what their population is doing and, you know, what, what's going on out there. Um, Cause you know, lake trout and Fort Peck, they're, they're actually naturally reproducing on their own. Uh, the last um, uh, stocking effort occurred in 2004, and, and no Lakers have been stocked since then. Um, you know, and I would say that as far as like what we've seen with some of their population trend data is, you know, they're holding their own. Um, they're staying, you know, relatively steady. The one interesting thing is, is, is what we've seen with their size structure in the last two to three years. Uh, they've actually pulled off some pretty decent year classes of of, of 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 spawning, and so it looks like there's some good recruitment coming up uh, in these next few years. And and again, part of that goes back to you know we've also had some good cisco reproduction, you know, and it seems like you know if those fish hatch out, um, you know those those lakers are are hatching out as well, and if they have food items to get on, you know, within that first first year of their life i mean man that's it's 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 looking very optimistic you know for their growth and survival down the road um i will say that you know i don't know what folks's expectations are when they come to fort peck to look for lakers or hopefully catch lake trout but 
you know, you have a shot at, you know, a, a, a 20 pound lake trout, you're probably going to be averaging closer to mm, six, seven pounds maybe. But, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what it looks like in a nutshell for, for them. I will say that, um, you know, the oldest lake trout that we have aged on Fort Peck was 34 years old. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's plenty old. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not, you know, not like, uh, you know, some of those lake trout that are further north in, you know, uh, Canada and whatnot. But again, it's a, it's a different growing environment. And I would like to point that out because, you know, this is a reservoir. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely not food limited, you know, kind of getting back to uh, their growth potential, if you will, you know, like, you know, why don't you guys see, you know, 30 pound plus Lakers, you know, well, there's, there's a lot of Cisco out there, but, but what we do see is we uh, collect temperature dissolved oxygen profiles, you know, throughout the open water period on Fort Peck. And, and what we notice is, uh, you know, obviously temperatures warm up during the summer months, you know, progressively. And uh, we'll start to see some warmer temperatures, you know, develop obviously in the upper portion of the reservoir, but we'll also see lower dissolved oxygen levels start to, you know, creep in at that time. And, you know, if we're, if we're starting to get below, you know, like six parts per million, you know, that is not ideal for lake trout growth. Um, And so, you know, they're, like I say, they're getting by, but they don't have like some of those top uh, ideal habitat, you know, temperature dissolved oxygen, high levels um, that they might experience, you know, up in, in northern parts of Canada or, or, or Great Lakes, you know, Taylor. And what, what exactly, like, what exactly uh, is affecting them at that time? Like when the lower dissolved oxygen levels are, I mean, is it just separating them maybe from their food source or they just, they just themselves, they get a headache and they just don't do as good? Like, like what, uh, you know, what is that doing to affect them, you know, so much? So, like you say, in comparison to some of the other, you know, more, uh, you know, capital lake trout, uh, trophy lake trout factories. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's going to limit, it's going to limit them and, you know, kind of where they can go and, and hunt for food. You know, that's not to say that they could come, come up out of, you know, um, you know, deeper water to, to grab some Cisco that are up closer to the thermal plant or whatever. But, you know, it from, you know, again, you have to remember that they're, they're a cold water fish. They like really high levels of, of you know, oxygenated water. And so they, they kind of, you know, in essence, you know, they kind of slow down a little bit, you know, really. And that's what it boils down to. And I, I can't help but wonder, too, you know, um, if, if, if that's why we see sometimes lower catch rates when we get into August and September. Um, because, you know, these fish are not as active, say, and, and then it doesn't help too, you know, with, well, you know, there's all of a sudden a surge in, in Cisco abundance out there. You know, like I talked about those Cisco hatch out in the springtime. Well, by August, you know, those, those Cisco are getting close to three to four inches and sometimes five inches, you know, when we get into September. So all of a sudden there's you know, millions of small Cisco swimming out there. So it's tough for us as anglers, you know, to compete with <laughs> the real deal out there, oh, you know, yeah. bouncing, a, bouncing a jig around in front of a lake trout or maybe pulling a, a crankbait down there, you know, on a, on a gallery or whatever. Oh yeah. No, that's a phenomenal point, Heath, because again, making all this stuff really relatable to the guy that's, 
you know, interpreting this information, relating it to a fishing experience. Like, you know, if you're getting your fishing reports from that time of year, that August, September, you know, your lake trout fishing reports and, you know, somebody that just had a, a couple of tough days or went out there, uh, you know, and had a tough trip, you know, yeah. the, the interpretation shall not be that the lake trout aren't doing well on Fort Peck. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That couldn't be further from the case. You know, it's, you, you, you know, classic word there is perception. It's like, exactly. yeah, there's, there's some other variables here that are influencing. I mean, you know, but with, with our electronics these days, you know, you should at least be able to be like, well, you know, I bounced this jig over this fish about, you know, for five, 10 minutes or whatever. I pulled my lure across its nose, you know, and, and it's not taking it, you know, but um, it's down there, but you know, why isn't it biting? And, and I think, you know, those, those explanations there, you know, that I talked about food and, and oxygen levels, you know, I think really, really influence why they do what they do. Yeah. 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 No, man, that's awesome. And it's crazy. We've covered so much ground in this and I still just feel like, you know, you know, one thing you and I were chatting, uh, before this, you know, talking about what you do for a living. And just one of those fun things about your job is that you go out and you seek information. You're, you have questions that need answering and you're, you're, every time you answer two questions, you usually create two more. And I feel like we've just done that. I feel like we've answered a billion questions, <laughs> but myself included and people listening are more than likely going to just like, like it, it, we're probably going to just regret all the questions that we di- I didn't ask, you know, it, it, this whole well, thing. So we're going to have to come back to this. I can't wait for the feedback on this. And, uh, and, and so that being said though, you know, we got to draw the line somewhere. Unbelievable information about Fort Peck reservoir. And it is just one of the hottest, most popular fishing opportunities and I don't just mean walleye. It's not just, you know, lake trout for the lake trout guys. It's all the, all the game fish species that uh, are, are doing well on Fort Peck. It's an opportunity for anybody. Thank you so much for the time, Heath. Um, you know, wrapping this up, we're going to have to do this again. But wrapping this up, you know, is there any, any, anything that we could promote as far as, you know, how do people reach out to you if they're looking for more information? Maybe they want you to elaborate on something you said here, or just, you know, how do they get in touch with you? You know, is there any other content or is there any, anything that you want to promote or put out there, you know, uh, for people to take a look at or how they can reach out to you? Go ahead. Yeah. So if, yes, somebody wants to get in touch with me, you know, ask me questions about, you know, anything we discussed today, um, or, or other questions for that matter. Um, you know, you can reach me email. Uh, my email address is H H E A D L E Y at MT.gov. So it's H Headley at MT.gov. Um, and then you can call my, my, uh, office phone is, uh, 406-526-3471. And the extension number is 206. And, yeah, I'd be more than happy to to chat with you about whatever questions, you know, they have as far as, you know, fishing or, you know, what to look for or, you know, status of the fishery, whatever, I guess. It's, like I say, I always enjoy talking to anglers as well and getting feedback from them. And, yeah, just sharing that communication back and forth. Yeah, man. 
Dude, I appreciate the time so much. I know you guys are out there grinding and, um, you know, everything that you guys do is so beneficial to you know, just you know, the, the everyday angler that's just out there for the experience. Um, and I feel like it, it, there's just been no shortage, no shortage of, of uh, you know, sort of thirst or, or, or just request uh, from anglers that listen to this show for more of that you know, that, that science-based information, like what's actually going on, you know, the why, the, the why are things the way they are? Why did things happen the way they happened? You know, we're the modern day angler. I feel like this day and age is trying to learn a lot. And, um, and it just, it adds to the fishing. It adds to the fishing experience. Um, I feel like it does for me anyways. And, um, you know, these conversations are just uh, a lot of fun and super important for the industry. And, you know, to hear guys like you that are out there doing all this stuff, uh, but you're an angler as well, and that it, it it contributes to how you do your job in a positive way is absolutely what you know. The anglers that are paying taxes uh, to have guys like you out there doing it, it's what we want to hear. And I feel like it's happening. It, you guys are so many. I mean, I don't know if I've really had a conversation with a fisheries guy in any state that wasn't an avid angler. And, uh, you know, it, it, I, I feel like I have to say that because it wasn't all that long ago that the average conversation on the street, you know, you guys would be accused of definitely not being anglers, definitely, you know, you know, questioning everything that you do, but yet not having that relation, not having that open communication. So yeah, man, I appreciate you throwing that stuff out there. Hopefully people reach out if they get a chance, uh, whether it's now or down the road or whatever. So if there's, uh, anything else that we got to throw in, Let's do it. Otherwise, man, I can let you back to it, Heath. I'm just kind of looking at a couple things here that I jotted down that I didn't get a chance to, but I mean, like, you know, touched on longevity of lake trout, but, you know, I don't know if some of the listeners would know that. I mean, the oldest walleye that we aged in Fort Peck was 26 years old, Taylor. You know, That's and so old. I mean, that, that, and that wasn't that long ago. And, you know, there's, there's other individuals that we see, you know, consistently you know up to 20 years old based on these odalists and it's telling us that yeah mortality isn't a huge issue you know again because of food because of habitat and you know any natural or angling mortality you know it's like man these these fish are are living and and growing (laughs) very well you know um and the other thing that i was going to say too is you know cisco are a super important component to this fishery the one thing, though, the one caveat with that is where there are Cisco, you know, anglers can typically expect lower catch rates, you know, because, again, they're kind of a good-sized food item, highly caloric. Um, and they've actually done studies with, like, walleye metabolism looking at that and, and found where, you know, where Cisco and walleyes are together and, and, and it's predominantly walleye-Cisco interaction, you know, they're less active. They're not having to feed as often. And then, but on the flip side of that, they're growing to larger sizes, you know, and trophy potential, which, you know, discussed earlier. With an old walleye, like of all the old walleyes that you find or see or in your career, do you have any kind of an assessment on the walleyes that is there any trends or any patterns to really old walleyes that you know are they male or female uh does it does it appear as though 
they are successful spawners. Do they actually go through the rigors of the spawn that many times and they're still alive? Like, 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 is there a pattern whatsoever to getting a walleye to be old or is it, um, you know, is it maybe an anomaly like to where there's just a population of males that just don't ever do a spawn run and they, you know, and they just grow old or whatever. Like, is there anything along those lines? Yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to think. I, nothing that pops into my head taylor and it's again it's it's so crazy because even though you know we might have you know a, a well shoot a 27 inch walleye you know we really it, on fort peck honestly that fish could be anywhere from 12 to well <laughs> 26 years old you know because once they start getting up into that upper 20 and, and 30 inch range you know they're boy they're they're not growing much man they're just keeping on keeping on maintaining you know they're, they're still probably doing good but you know just by looking at that fish like i say you know as is 27 inches it's like well it can be either 12 years old or like i said 26 years old we don't know if, if you know we don't have the oldest i guess is what i'm getting at there's yeah yeah there's yeah, that, yeah there's that much age variation you know on a In fish, the that fish. Size. yeah all right man all right i'll let you to it man appreciate the time heath Hey, thanks for having me, and uh, I'll talk to you later, man. Hi, later. Bye. This episode of the JMO Podcast is brought to you by Montana's Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Department. As anglers, we have the ability to help protect the wonderful fishing opportunities in the state of Montana. For more information on regulations or AIS prevention in the state of Montana, head to the link that is in the description of this podcast that is fwp.mt.gov backslash AIS.